Father, we love your word. It, we see Jesus just shining in this book, and you come to life, and you change our lives. We believe that it's all about you, and, and the gospels especially, they just center on you, Jesus. And So we're asking that you would teach us what you believe, what you want us to know. And we see that in your words. So teach us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn to Mark chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 14 through 23. And I don't even have the page numbers because we haven't been inside in a long time. But normally I'll give page numbers of the Bibles that we give away. So if you need a Bible, though, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. Okay, if you need a Bible, and, uh, and uh, someone will bring you one, and that'll, you can keep that. That's yours, our gift to you. But uh, we're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. We're at chapter 7, verses 20, 14 through 23. By the way, for those of you who are online, you can uh, turn to, I always forget the name of the app, Version Bible app. Thank you. On the Version Bible app, we have all my PowerPoints there, okay? So you can get the PowerPoints from that, and you all have it right there, all right? So that's a... But you could go to the U version as well if you would like. So we're going through Mark 7, 14 through 23. I want to read a, uh, an illustration in a commentary here by Jerry Vines. He says, suppose tomorrow morning you find your kitchen filled with water. You get a bucket, mop, and you start mopping and squeezing and hauling the, that water out. But the kitchen just keeps filling up with more water how much better it would be to go to the source of water and cut off the flow. You can mop, you can carry out water all day long, but you aren't going to solve the problem until you go to the source of the problem. Does that make sense? Okay, that does make sense. But when looking at the problems of the world, the problems of our nation, the problems of human beings, the heart of the problem is the heart. Let's look at our passage, Mark 7, 14. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he says what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Now the context of our passage, if you remember as we've been going through this, book, in chapter 7, Jesus confronts the Pharisees as hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites because they were uh, trying to make other people follow their 
man-made rules. They had these ritual ceremonial washings that they were forcing others to abide by for spiritual reasons. They had elevated their tradition to equality with Scripture. And in fact, in many cases, as we saw last week, making Scripture obsolete so that people could be forced to follow their traditions. Jesus confronts them, and now he's showing why that doesn't work and that the heart of the problem is the heart. You see, the solution, if the heart of the problem is the heart, the solution is a heart transplant and revival. That's the solution to the problems of the world, to get people to get a heart transplant, to be born again. Jesus made it very clear, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. To be born again, when you repent of your sins, place your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone as your savior, and you outwardly express that faith in baptism, the Bible says you're born again, you become a true believer. And that's the beginning. So you're born again, and then you get on fire, on fire for Jesus. That's revival. That will change you, and that will change society eventually, okay? It just rubs off. That's what happens, okay? More and more people getting born again and on fire, okay? This is the solution for individuals and for nations. So let's look at our passage. First of all, Verses 14 through 16, we see that humans' opinion of sin and God's opinion of sin is different. You see, he's talking to them. Everybody thought, and this is certainly the way the Pharisees thought, but the people of the land, they basically followed the Pharisees. So everybody thought that the problem was the outside. And so you had to be careful about what went inside. And so that was, they were trying to abide by these rules and common people couldn't do it. The Pharisees did it a little better than them. But that wasn't the problem. See, even in our world today, though we don't follow some of these silly traditions, we still have a different opinion of sin than what God has about sin. Now, if our opinion determines our effort for a cure. So if our opinion about the problem of the world is X, whatever that might be, we say, well, the real problem of the world is this, then we're going to try to find solutions to, to change that, to fix that problem, okay? For instance, okay, let's say I go to the doctor and I, I have uh, some stomach problems, and I go to the doctor, and I don't go to Dr. Jablonski because he would diagnose it properly. But let's say I go to somebody else, dumb me, and I go, and they diagnose it, I got acid reflux, and so they give me some medicine for that, and, and I actually start to feel a little better after a while. But what if I actually have stomach cancer? Is the misdiagnosis going to actually help is the acid reflux medicine going to help the stomach cancer? No. you got to diagnose the problem correctly. Now, the world basically says we're not, us people, we're not that bad. So sin is not that bad. And therefore, with a little bit of education, throw in some politics, that's our solution. But what if sin is actually really bad 
And it's so bad that only a heart transplant and revival can fix the problem. That's what we need because that's what God believes. And we begin this on an individual basis, one person at a time coming to Christ, getting on fire for Jesus. But then as that begins to build, more and more people coming to Christ, more and more people coming, uh, it, it revivals spreading, and then all of a sudden we start influencing our society as well. Let me give you a little history, very, very brief, okay, of church history from the 1950s until now. All right, okay, so ready? Okay, in the 1950s, lots of people actually went to church. That was the happy days, remember that? Okay, 1950s, that was what was going on. But a lot of the Christians were maybe not real Christians. It was just what you did, okay? And so that was happening in the 50s. Well, the 60s was a reaction to that hypocrisy. And in the 60s, you have this massive revolution, total change in our society, and they revolted against the hypocrisy of the 50s, but not in a good way, okay? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll really began to destroy our country with, and that's where the birth of postmodernism took place, is in the 60s. But in the 70s, as a reaction to the 60s, you had the Jesus movement. In the Jesus movement, more people came to Christ than ever before in the history of the United States. So that what really was, for all intents and purposes, the greatest revival we've ever experienced as a nation. And it really changed things. People got changed, got massively changed. That's what I got saved, okay? They got changed, and, and then it began to actually influence society. But there was a pushback. There was a fight back and forth. And then you got the 80s and the 90s that took place. And that's the church growth movement where the church actually died. That's what happened. Okay? They began to say, oh, you know, because the church is primarily, the, that's, the, the growth, that's the rise of the megachurch. And what happened with the megachurch is they just grew because they figured out how to steal sheep from other churches. And so they grew not by reaching the lost and getting them saved and getting them on fire, but instead by taking people from other churches and overall, the statistics of people going to church stagnated and then went down. So it really didn't help. And because they were telling people, it's all about you. We want to make you happy. Have a great experience so that you feel and that's, that was the mentality, still is for many of them, not all of them, okay, but, but still for a lot of them, that was the mentality. And if it's all about me, that really doesn't really have a great view of the problem, does it? Because the problem is you and me, our heart, okay? So there's your history. Now, back to our passage here, what we see is that humans look at the outward, but God looks at the heart. They were looking at the outward. What you putting in there, okay? You gotta make sure you ceremonially wash your hands. You gotta make sure you do this and this and this. And they were all concerned about, you know, the dietary laws, you, certain things you could eat and certain things you couldn't eat. They were all worried about that's what defiles you. And Jesus, he changes everything. He says, no, 
It's what goes in. God looks at the heart. Now, I want to show you what the heart looks like. Look at Jeremiah 17, verse 9. This is not very flattering, by the way. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. We see what God thinks. It says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. Wow. The heart, this is before you're born again, true of all humanity, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. That's why you need a heart transplant. Incurable, who can understand it. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? There is what the heart looks like. That's why mopping up the water isn't gonna work. You gotta go to the source, stop the source, and the source is the heart. We need a, a human heart transplant. So, so what are humans like, okay? Now, we're kind of a strange species, <laughs> right? Because there's some really good in us and some really bad in us, right? Uh, in fact, uh, humans have dignity. When you look at the Bible and the way it describes human beings, Genesis 1.27 starts out, and it says that all humans, we are created in the image of God, okay? And we know that even though, even after the fall, according to Genesis 5.1 and according to James 3 verse 9, even after the fall, we still somehow bear the image of God in us. Okay, though it's distorted because the heart has been distorted as we've already seen, we still bear the image of God in us. And so, therefore, that's why every single human being should be treated with dignity, should be shown respect, should be cared for, loved. That's how we're, even the people you don't like, okay? So that's, that's how we're supposed to see every human being. Humans have dignity. Let me read you an illustration, okay? R. Scott Richards in his book, Myths the World Taught Me. This is a great book, okay? Let me give you this illustration uh, about human beings. Now, some of you who are old like me will remember this account, okay? This, this actually happened. He says, he starts out, he says, children are an incredible, valuable, uh, natural resource. Not only are they our hope for tomorrow, but they also possess an innate ability to reveal the truth about who we really are. <laughs> A prime example of this phenomenon recently took place in an unlikely location. The world caught a glimpse of the true inner nature of mankind in Midland, Texas. It all started innocently enough on a warm autumn afternoon, two preschoolers decided to play a game of family. Going next door, they enlisted their blonde 18-month-old neighbor to play the time-honored role of baby. The threesome proceeded to strike out across the backyard in traditional family formation, daddy on the right, mommy on the left, and baby in the middle. Suddenly, something was desperately wrong. Baby was gone. She had fallen into the mouth of an old abandoned well, partially covered by the backyard grass. You guys remember this? Okay. 
uh, trapped some 20 feet below the rocky surface of the earth, the plight of Jessica McClure gripped the hearts of a neighborhood town and eventually an entire nation. Volunteers, experts in drilling, excavation, and rescue techniques swarmed in from across the country. Network news reporters recorded the round-the-clock efforts as a race against time and seemingly impossible circumstances kept the world on the edge of his seat. Then some 58 hours after the ordeal began, Jessica emerged from her dark prison in the arms of a sweat-soaked, tough-as-nails rescue volunteer. The glaring camera lights revealed intense emotions, the collective sense of relief and joy shared by Jessica's parents, her neighbors, and yes, even the world. The story of Jessica showed us a clear picture of the ability of ordinary human beings to act with nobility, bravery, and a gritty kind of dignity when the chips were down. The plight of a helpless child can truly bring out the best in us. And, and that that's true. Somehow, because we still bear the image of God in us, that's a part of who we are. But as we've already seen, humans are also totally depraved. That's what it means by having a heart as desperately wicked as, as how uh, some translations put it. Uh, totally depraved. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Here we see this uh, idea of depravity and total depravity means not that you're as bad as you could be but that every aspect of your soul is corrupted because of the sinful nature look at Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 12 he says what then are we any better off not at all for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. That's the summary verse of chapters one through three of the book of Romans, one through three, verse eight. He says, all are under sin, everybody, both Jews and Gentiles. Then he quotes the Old Testament. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. One. Verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the heart of the problem of human beings before they get the heart transplant. And if we're that bad, then if we think that through a little bit of education in politics, we can bring utopia, we're mistaken. We have the utopia seekers, you know. It actually started in the 19th century. 19th century liberalism began to seek utopia. They, they wanted to bring about the perfect world because they didn't see we're not so bad as society that's bad, which they don't realize that society is a bunch of people, okay? <laughs> okay, but we can, we can do this. And they really had this heart that, you know, they were thinking we could get to a 20-hour work week and everybody could just be happy and no problems and everybody treats everybody just right. And so utopia, that's what they were looking for, right? Okay, and then World War I hits. That took them off guard, but it didn't stop them because they said, what did they call World War I? They called it the, world, the war to end all wars, right? That was what it was called because they sought that utopia. Okay, but then World War II hit. <laughs> okay, and uh, and it, so, so in other words, it didn't stop. 
It wasn't the war to end all wars. <laughs> and we, and are we, have we gotten any better today? Okay. It's because the heart of the problem is the heart. That's what needs to be fixed. Um, here we see that sins of the heart defile us. Uh, in, in our passage, the uh, 14 through 16, he concludes here, Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile them, but the things that come out of a person are what defiles them. Sins of the heart. God diagnoses our problem correctly, okay? We need, because of that, we need forgiveness and cleansing. We need both forgiveness and cleansing. I want you to read, uh, turn to Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. Here's a great prayer of David after he had committed a terrible sin. And we see this prayer of his in Psalm 32, which is a great way of praying when you find in you, you yourself uh, convicted of sin. Look what he says. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. When we confess, he forgives. But according to 1 John 1, 9, he says when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin defiles us and needs cleansing. But Christ, through his death on the cross, brings about that cleansing power. And so we see our need. Now, verses 17 through 19, we see that Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. He brings the new covenant in order to replace the old covenant. Look at what it says here. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated into the latrine is what it actually says in the Greek. Thus he declared all foods clean. He's changing everything here. And I just want to say Jesus changes everything. Ever since I came to know Jesus, my life has been so incredibly awesome and wonderful. Okay, now it doesn't mean you don't have troubles, of course. You know, Doug, do we have troubles? Of course we do, yeah. But you know, because this world is messed up. We're not going to get utopia in this world, right? But Jesus, anybody else, just say really quickly, just a testimony, just say Jesus has changed my life. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we could go on. We could probably stay here for hours and hear everybody's testimony. It'd be kind of fun too, but I'd probably get hungry, so we'll 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 bypass that. But no, I mean, he does. Okay, so education is good if it's godly education, and politics are necessary if the policies honor God. 
But Jesus is the real need of the world. We look at this passage, and first of all, we see that the disciples are shown to be ignorant. <laughs> They're like, you could just imagine, you know, Jesus in his Jewish voice, you know, ay, ay, ay. You know, this, uh, I'm, <laughs> okay, that's oive, that's what he would have said, right? Or something, something like that, you know, okay, okay. Our, verse 18, he says, are you also as lacking in understanding? <laughs> you know, and, and this is kind of interesting because the Gospel of Mark actually brings this out more so than any of the other Gospels. It shows that the disciples as really dumb, okay? And, and m- scholars believe it's because uh, Peter oversaw Mark's writing of this particular Gospel. We know that from the early church fathers, that, the, that Peter was actually helping Mark. Mark's writing it, but Peter's having an influence. And Peter was a humble man after denying Jesus three times and Jesus bringing him back in, you know. So he, and he, he wanted Mark to make sure he brought out the really dumb parts of the disciples' lives. Okay, so we see here uh, the disciples are shown to be ignorant. But we also see, you notice at the very end there, verse 19, all foods are declared clean. It says, thus he declared all foods clean. Now, in many of your translations, there's a little parentheses, right? Now, some people think, oh, if it has parentheses, it might not be in all the, you know, all the, the translations or whatever, all the, all the, uh, you know, the Greek manuscripts. But that's not true. If it has brackets in it, that means there's a discrepancy. Parentheses is just a way of saying this was Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, evaluating what Jesus is actually saying. In other words, this is what he's saying. And he was saying all foods are declared to be clean because it's not what goes into you, even if it's pork. Okay? It's not what goes into you, it's what comes out of you. And so that, thus he is declaring all foods clean, all right? Um, Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, we see this, where Peter should have known already by this account, <laughs> right? But, you know, he was a little slow, and so God gives him this dream, and, he, and God brings down a sheet of all kinds of unclean animals, the animals of the Old Testament that they weren't allowed to eat. And God tells him, get up and eat them. And Peter says, oh, no, no, Lord, I have never eaten any unclean food. And God says, don't call unclean what I call clean. Now, we know from the context that he's ultimately pointing to the Gentiles because then that's when he leads the Gentiles to, uh, to, to Christ. But he is, in the dream, declaring all the foods clean. He declared them clean. He said, get up and eat them. Just like Jesus declares here, all foods are clean. So if God says they're clean, that means what? You guys are good. Okay. We see this in Romans 14, 5 through 6. We see it in Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Now, this does not mean that there's no moral law. Of course, we still have the moral law, right? We're still under the moral law. God's moral standards never change. But God does change things. Jesus changes everything. All foods are declared clean. The Old Testament law was only temporary. It was only for a time. The law of Moses, not the moral law, but the law of Moses, that was only temporary. The covenant with Moses was temporary. The covenant with Abraham was eternal, but the covenant with Moses was temporary. Look at Galatians 3, 19 through 26. 
this is helpful because sometimes Christians, uh, people say about Christians, they say, oh, you just pick and choose which, which uh, you know, Bible verses you want to go by. And I said, no, we just go by what Jesus says, okay? We go by the whole Bible. And here's clearly what the Bible says about the covenant with Moses. Look at verse 19. Why then was the law given? Okay, the law of Moses. It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. So why did God give the law? That's the the law of Moses, because of sins. He's working with a very rebellious, sinful people until the seed comes. That's Jesus, until Jesus comes. And we know that, if you'll skip to verse 24, explains it even better. He says, the law then was our guardian until Christ. So it was a guardian. It kept them in line, sort of, until Christ. That word until means once Christ comes, that's you're no, you no longer need that, see? So he says, so that we could be justified by faith, but since that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. The guardian's the law, we're no longer under the law. For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. So it was only for a time, those particular laws for the Jewish nation. Now we're no longer under those laws. In fact, even Peter wasn't under those laws. Um, Let's see here. I thought I had it. Oh, yeah. Look at uh, Galatians 2, verse 14. Okay. This is kind of neat because, once again, Peter should have known by now, right? He had the vision in Acts chapter 10. He had the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 7. But does he get it? Well, look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. This is uh, Paul rebuking Peter. He says, but when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas, that's Peter, in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and do not, and not like a Jew, how can you, con- how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter, when he started hanging around his Jewish friends, he began to get a little legalistic again. But notice he, Paul says, you, you don't even live like a Jew anymore. Why? Because he had already adopted what Jesus said. He was eating pork even. Okay, That's what he means by this. So he's not living like a Jew, but then he got caught up with it, so he had to get rebuked. Because the Old Testament law was only te- temporary. Now, the moral law, once again, that predates Moses. You have the moral law put in the Old Testament before Moses came along. Uh, what, what they call the covenant of works with Adam and Eve even, all the way from the very beginning. So the Old Testament law was only temporary, and Jesus brought the new covenant. See, this is how he changed everything. He brought the new covenant to replace the old covenant. Okay, the old covenant was temporary. Now the new covenant, because the new covenant actually works. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, 7 through 13. Hebrews, that's why I make the coffee in the morning. It says, verse uh, 7, no, verse 8, I'll just start with 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, notice it's not fault with the law, it was fault with the people, the law just didn't work, uh, He says, and now he's quoting Jeremiah. See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's when they went to Mount Sinai and received the, the law of Moses. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. And the Old Testament actually gives this evidence as well that it was only a temporary covenant and that it was going to be replaced by a new covenant. And so Jesus bringing the new covenant changes everything. All right. Now, back to our passage though, okay? So Jesus has changed everything, but then we see in verses 20 through 23 that sin is really bad for us, okay? We still are under the moral law. Sin is really bad for us, not just sort of bad for us, okay? Look at verse 20 through 23. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. These are cardiac arrest sins. Really bad for you, okay? Really bad for you. And they're all moral sins. Did you notice that? Nothing from the law of Moses here. All moral sins. I think a cardiac arrest burgers, okay? You know, Hardy's has the monster thick burger, right? That thing will give you a heart attack, okay? But then I, I, I did some research. Have you ever, anybody heard of a, fast food place called Wayback? I have no idea where they're at, but they have a triple, triple burger. A six burgers. It is, it is 1,780 calories in one burger, okay? That's a heart attack burger. Fat burgers. Fat burgers have uh, they, they have their XXXL burger. It's one and a half pounds, okay? This is, this is cardiac arrest burgers. These are cardiac arrest sins. That's how bad they are, okay? And with this, by the way, this list of sins represents all of us. I want you to go back and look at those particular sins mentioned there. Evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. When we look at these, have you committed any of these? Then you're a sinner, right? <laughs> That's what we're seeing here. We're all sinners, and we've all committed these cardiac arrest sins. This is the situation that we are in. We don't need a little fix. We need a heart transplant and we need revival, okay? Revival is the ultimate solution. 
the ultimate solution. You look at the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, like Paul, okay, he was a massive sinner. And then he gets saved, radically changed, life absolutely changed. So he can't help but just tell people about Jesus. And people are either coming to Jesus or, or they're persecuting him, right? He was either leading people to Jesus or getting persecuted, stoned, uh, you know, shipwrecked, all these, other, all these things happening to him, okay? And that's because of the effect we have on people. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Here we see God's plan. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So through us, believers, okay, he spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him, knowledge of God in every place. Here's the effect, though. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we're an aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. Who is adequate for these things? As we are on fire living for Jesus, we're going to have an effect on people where lots of people get saved and lots of people get mad at us. Okay? That's what's going to happen. That's what this clash is, say- is, gonna, is supposed to take place, actually. But the church right now is not on fire. And we need revival. At this day, at this time, we need revival. So, is there hope? Is there hope for you personally? Paul had Christians murdered, and he got saved. David committed adultery and had the husband killed. God forgave him changed him and used him for his glory. Peter denied Jesus three times. God forgave him, brought him in, told him he loved him. See, it doesn't matter what you have done. If you repent of your sins, place your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation, you believe that he died to pay the penalty you were supposed to pay for your sins. So you're putting your faith in him, not your own good works, not your own whatever. And you outwardly express that faith in baptism. The Bible says you're saved. You're born again. That's how you begin. And then you get on fire. See, is there hope for our nation? Absolutely. I have that written down right there. Absolutely. Who said that? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, but only through revival. So we pray, we seek the Lord. Now I want to say something about recent events because many, many people that I know personally and many that I don't know personally have been praying for years. They've been praying for decades to stop the slaughter of innocent babies by abortion. They've been praying for decades that this something would happen. And if you think that Ginsburg's death caught God by surprise at this specific time, then you probably need to rethink your view of God. We are in a time where I believe we're going to get to see that horrible thing end. And wow, 
It's because of prayer. You see, prayer, I believe, actually works. Now, it might not be in our time. That's the bummer, right? Okay. But I believe prayer works, and so we continue to seek the Lord in behalf of those who are hurting. And we pray for God to help uh, this nation, to help us also get the whole racial thing right, that, 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 that people would be tra- treated fairly. So we pray. Now, we're never going to have utopia, but I believe prayer really does work. We present the truth, and then we get on fire. We get on fire, and then we watch God move, okay? Let's praise God then, okay? Worship team, come on up. We need you to lead us.